turn your Bibles, if you have them, Joshua 24 and verse 15. Just one verse of scripture today, and I'm going to lift a title from this verse. Joshua speaking to the children of Israel toward the end of his life and leadership. He said, and if it seemed evil unto you, if it doesn't seem like a good idea to serve the Lord, then choose you this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. And then Joshua makes this statement, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And I preach this morning, as for me and my house. Can you lift your hands, lift your voices, and lift your hearts heavenward for a moment. Let's pray over the preaching of the Word of God. Let it, let it be something that speaks to every heart, we pray this morning. Jesus, God, we're so grateful for all that you've done. Thank you for our families. Thank you for your many blessings in our lives. And God, I'm praying this morning that what you have spoken to my spirit, God, that you would somehow allow me to relay it to this body this morning, to this congregation this morning. And I'm asking Jesus that it would not just be man's words or man's wisdom, but I pray that there would be a witness of your spirit as your word goes forth today. I ask it in Jesus' name. Let a blessing rest upon every family, every home, every individual gathered. We give you praise this morning. We give you thanks for all that you've done and for who you are to us. We love you, Lord. Why don't we offer our praise one more time to the Lord. Hallelujah. And it's so good to have everybody with us, every guest. God bless you this morning. You can be seated. The early church, they did not thrive because of beautiful, well-built, fully furnished sanctuaries or cathedrals. Certainly there are edifices that are built and dedicated to the glory of God all around the world that are ornate, they're beautiful, but the early Christians, the original Christians, the, the Book of Acts Christians, they were required to be a little more creative at times. And to take their opportunities to meet and preach Jesus wherever and whenever they came. Let me remind us of a fundamental truth this morning. While we are so grateful for this beautiful church campus that we have dedicated to the glory of God, there is nothing sacred about this address. This brick and mortar, these beams and boards, they give us a place to gather, but this ought not to be the only place that we meet God. John, uh, Jesus in John chapter 4, you may know the story, he meets a Samaritan woman at the well and he says something very significant. The Samaritans, they were shunned by the Jews at that time. There was a little bit of prejudice going on. And as a result, they were segmented. They were, they were apart from one another. They lived in different places. They worshipped in different places. And in fact, the Samaritans had their own temple. It was located on Mount Gerizim. And then the Jews, they had their own temple, and it was located in Jerusalem. And the question is, well, well whose place, whose temple was better? What was the right place to worship God? 
And Jesus, when he's speaking to this woman at the well, he gives us a powerful truth when he says in John 4, 21, he said, woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain, Gerizim, nor yet in Jerusalem worship the Father. Verse 23, but the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. You see, Jesus was relaying something powerful that we must understand today. That in the old covenant, the people of God were required to go to one designated place to engage in worshiping God. And they would take their pilgrimage many times throughout the year. And, and the paradigm, it was all about a geographic location. But all of that changed because of Calvary. Jesus shed blood and his victory on the cross, it opened the door. And interacting with the Spirit of God would no longer be relegated to one sacred place on the mercy seat, on that, on that Ark of the Covenant, behind a curtain in a temple or a tabernacle somewhere. But because of Calvary, the veil is now rent in twain, ushering in a new era. And no longer would a person only be able to meet God in one physical location, but now the Spirit of God can meet us in any place, anywhere that the people of God will worship Him and call upon His name in spirit and in truth. Jesus said, if two or three are gathered, then there I am in the midst of them. Jesus is able to draw near by the power of the Holy Ghost in any place, at any any moment for anybody that is hungry for him, anybody that will worship him and call on his name. How many know this morning that anywhere that the people of God gather under the banner of Jesus' name, he's there. Someone shout, he's there. How many believe that he's here this morning because the people of God have gathered under the banner of Jesus' name? Now, obviously, the early church, they got the memo about the work of Calvary and what it did for worshiping God. Because the early church met anywhere and everywhere. They preached Jesus whenever and wherever they could. Even when persecution would push them to unfamiliar and uncomfortable places, it did not silence their witness. The early Christians, they did not own commercial-style public buildings like we do today. And so any place possible became their new paradigm. And so they would meet in the Jewish temple, Acts 2. They would preach and they would reason with the Jews in synagogues on the Sabbath. That's throughout the book of Acts. They would meet in rented rooms like the upper room, the very first prayer meeting in church history. Paul preached Jesus daily in a school of one Tyrannus in Acts 19. They would address crowds in outdoor public spaces like in the streets of Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, like in the amphitheater in Athens called Oropagus. Paul did that. But perhaps most frequently, the church would meet in homes, the homes of believers. You see, for that early church, one of the best recurring opportunities for gathering was in private dwellings. And so you read verses like this, Acts 2.46, and they continuing daily with one accord in the temple, corporate gathering, that's wonderful, that's biblical, but also breaking bread from house to house. Look at your neighbor and say, house to house. 
They did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. And because this was their paradigm, because it wasn't relegated to just one sacred place, you watch the results and you read it in the next verse. They were praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. That's the power of this new paradigm. When we take it outside the walls, when we are willing to be the church anywhere and everywhere we go, when we're willing to call on the name of Jesus in any setting and declare His goodness and declare His name to a world around us, there's power in that. And I believe that that is how the church will grow and experience revival. It's when we will adopt the paradigm of that first century church and those first century believers and we will meet not just here. We won't just celebrate Jesus here, but we'll celebrate Jesus Anywhere we go. If you believe that this morning, why don't you clap your hands and and just let the Lord know, I believe that that's right. Several weeks ago, we talked about Aquila and Priscilla, and I won't belabor it, but their house became an epicenter for revival. They allowed the Apostle Paul to live with them for a time. They invited a young preacher named Apollos into their home for a home Bible study, explaining the way of God more perfectly to him. But most notably, their home, it actually became the regular meeting place for the church in the city of Ephesus. They didn't have any other place to meet, so it was in the house of Aquila and Priscilla. And Paul said, greet them. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Christ Jesus. And likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Somebody say, in their house. 1 Corinthians 16, 19, the churches of Asia salute you. Aquila and Priscilla salute you much in the Lord, Paul said. It's not just them, but it's also with the church that is in their house. So I'll say there's nothing wrong with public venues. That's book of Acts 2. There's nothing wrong with public gatherings, but it's no secret that the church thrived in its early years because of the believers' homes. If it were not for the church gathering house to house, they would not have experienced the widespread revival that they did. And so I'll say emphatically today that the church back then, it moved forward and it was carried on the back of strong families and strong homes and they experienced revival. Because strong families and and strong apostolic homes make a strong church of the living God. I'll say that strong homes facilitate the revival that God desires to bring to his church. I believe today, and I'm speaking as clearly as I can, that if we want to see a book of Acts revival take place, I'm thankful for every component that we love and we believe. And, and I, know, I believe you, you are in agreement with what I'm preaching this morning as well. I'm thankful for sound doctrine. I'm thankful for the mighty God in Christ, that revelation. I'm I'm thankful for the new birth. I'm thankful for holiness as unto the Lord. But we cannot leave out a key component of what they possessed. And that was strong, apostolic, Christian homes. Their homes became the hub of what God was doing in their city. Their homes were a place where teaching and discipleship took place. They fellowship. They shared meals in their homes. They did not have the opportunity to be building-centric. They did not have the opportunity to relegate their spirituality to somewhere over there. In this modern era, I, I, I think that we can so easily 
relegate our spirituality, compartmentalize our Christianity to a church campus. And, and I don't feel that I need to qualify, but I will. I've already done it like twice, but here, here we go a third time. Corporate worship is biblical. It's necessary. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. So what we're doing this morning is right. It's right to gather, to sing, and to worship, and to praise the Lord together. Amen? It's right. But our approach, what I'm preaching, it must be more holistic than that. It must be more integrated than that. We must not be satisfied like those Old Testament believers to make our pilgrimage each Sunday and only meet God here. We must not be content for the paid professional ministry to receive and relate all direction from God. Even in the Old Testament, isn't that what they did? They said, Moses, you go on the mountain. You get a word from God and, and then tell us. We don't want anything to do with that. That's what they did. They were afraid God would kill them. Probably because they were pagan or something. I, they were just afraid. But that must not be our idea. We must not, and I'm addressing young families not exclusively, but particularly, and I will say we must not lean on Sunday school teachers alone to teach our children God's Word. Amen. I must not be satisfied to count on somebody else to teach my children the things of God, but we must be determined, all of us, young families and everybody else, to be a part of revival. And to allow our homes to be a place where truth is declared, where the community of the church is cultivated, and where strong, godly families are forged in the Holy Ghost. We've got to be determined to be a part of what God is doing. As for me and my house, somebody shouted today, as for me and my house, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Our homes undoubtedly are in hell's crosshairs. There's no question that the enemy has launched a full force attack against godly values in our society today and in particular against the family. I understand, and I'm going to tread where angels fear to trot a little bit, but I understand it's not culturally palatable or politically correct to stand up and say that the nuclear family is God's ideal. But allow me to say that one man and one woman Bearing and raising children in the context of marriage is God's original and best design to promote human flourishing and human happiness. If you believe that today, I wish the church would let a hearty amen rise today. Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. We are not just mammals. We are not just animals driven by our every urge and instinct. We are created in the image of our creator, God Almighty. And God blessed them, verse 28. And God said to them, male and female, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And you move to chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And so from the beginning, this is creation, you see that the model was the nuclear family. 
It wasn't called that at the time. That is a modern uh, invention from the last century. But this was God's plan nonetheless. The name was invented, but it's God's design. The family unit. And we're going to say the family. It serves many functions. This is not just haphazard. This is not just one of many, many ways. This is God's way. This is God's way. The marriage, which is a part of the family, it, it, it serves as a picture to the world and to all of us of Christ's love for his bride, the church. Ephesians chapter 5 teaches that. The family unit, it gives children a front row seat to the unique and complementary characteristics of male and female as they observe dad and mom. The ups and downs, let's talk about the parental relationship. The many ups and downs of parenthood, they offer a compelling picture to parents of God's tenderness and his patience toward us as his children. Because when your child throws a temper tantrum or or makes a mistake, you don't kick them out on the side of the road. You love them. You care for them. In the other direction, children to parents, the practice of honoring father and mother, which by the way is the only one of the Ten Commandments that has a promise attached to it. That you'll live long and it will go well with you. That's the promise. That commandment, it builds character in children. Teaches the value of submission and obedience even when it's inconvenient and not desired. This is what the family does. This is the byproduct, the end result of strong families even in our 21st century godless world. And it's no surprise to me that we see all of the above, all of the components of the family being systematically opposed by this world's agenda and system. Hell tries to destroy and pervert and distort the institution of the family, number one, because it was God's design and he hates God. But number two, if he can distort or destroy our families, then it hinders what we can do to advance the kingdom of God. And so divorce, absentee parentism, same-sex marriage, blurred gender distinctives, laws that allow for the killing of the unborn, these are just some of the ways that hell has made its advance against the family in our day. And I'm not here to condemn anybody. If any of these things have been a part of your story, you are not a second-rate child of God. You're not a less than. God can still use you. God can still put his hand upon you. And you may not have come from the ideal home or the typical God-designed nuclear family. And maybe you're not currently a part of an ideal home as God defines it. But that does not diminish what God can do through your family nonetheless. Because the truth is, none of us come from perfect families. Even if we fit in that category, nuclear family, we're still imperfect. Come by our house sometime, we're not perfect. We get grumpy too. We get cross at the kids sometimes too. They still say that cross. My grandmother said that. Don't make me cross. Maybe it's don't cross me or I'll get cross. So I'm not here to condemn anybody. But at some point the church must be willing to stand up for biblical truth. To raise the standard and say that God's ways are the best ways. 
that God's design and that God's intention is at least worth aiming for because it brings the greatest blessing and it sets the greatest example and it promotes human happiness and human flourishing in the world today. I want to be a testimony to the world around me. As much as is within my power, I want me and my house to honor the Lord. I want me and my family to be a picture of what God can do in a home and in a family. And so I'm going to aim for it. I'll miss sometimes. Sometimes we miss royally, but I want to aim for it. And I want to stand and declare truth. On this family Sunday, I stand to say that God's plan for the family, it is worth fighting for. And our families are worth fighting for. And I feel that God has just given me some components and I'll share them and, and, uh, and we're going to pray at the end as families today. But here are some components that I believe will help build strong, godly families in this godless world. I address our parents today, not just those with young children, but I feel to commission you in the Holy Ghost with the Word of God. And uh, certainly this applies to everybody under the sound of my voice as well. I will say this morning that we must be vigilant gatekeepers of our homes. Because what we allow into our homes plays a vital role in our spiritual health and the health of our families. The content we consume, the things we listen to, the activities we engage in, not only does it reflect our priorities and our values, but it impacts our spiritual man. And if you have children in particular living in your home, regardless of their age, can I tell you, if you're the spiritual head of your home, God has given you the responsibility to determine what happens in your house. God has mandated and commissioned every parent under the sound of my voice that serves the Lord, every spiritual head of the home, even if you're the only one serving God in your home, God has given you that responsibility. To parents, I say, I'm not called to be my child's friend first and foremost. I am called to train them up in the ways of the Lord. I am called to be their parent, not their buddy although hopefully along the way we can have some of that too. But sometimes we can sacrifice our mandate to parent and to lead to just appease the whims of children that are still developing and learning and growing and they don't know what's best for them. I am mandated to guard them, to protect them against worldliness, to make a stand for righteous living. And it is right to speak up and say, we don't do that in this house. It is right to stand up and say, these are the priorities of this family. It's right. I know I'm preaching uphill a little bit this morning, but it is right to stand and say, if you are living here, then these are the expectations upon you. As for me and my house, come on, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I may not be able to control all of the environments that my family will encounter. I can't control what happens in the classroom. I can't control what happens in their friend groups all the time. I can't control what happens when they're working a shift at work. But there is one environment that I am tasked to manage. There is one atmosphere that I have control over. And that is what happens within my dwelling place. That is what happens within my house. And so I'm challenging our families today to stand up and say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord.
because I'm the gatekeeper and I must be a vigilant gatekeeper. Numbers chapter 22 through 25, there's this interesting story. You read how this pagan king of Moab named Balak, he wanted to curse Israel because he was afraid of what God's people would do to Moab. He's freaking out because God's people, they set up camp, you know, just on their borders and he was afraid that they were going to attack. So he goes to the yellow pages, I can only imagine, and Balak, this pagan king of Moab, he starts flipping through and he gets to the letter P and he's looking down to the prophet. Yeah, okay, here we go. Need your enemies cursed. Give Balaam a call. And Balaam was a prophet looking to make a prophet, a pagan prophet at that. And so he gets the phone call. Balak finds Balaam and he hires him basically to pronounce a curse over, over the people of God, Israel. First thing you need to recognize from this story is that the enemy fights what he fears. Balak wasn't attacking just because he thought, well, I have the upper hand. No, he was attacking because he was afraid of what the people of God might do to him. The same thing still happens today. The devil hates God's people. He hates that you are leading your family in the things of God. He fears what your family might become. He fears what your child might be raised to declare in this last day age. He fears us, so he fights us, and he hurls his attacks. Several different times in the story, Balaam tries to curse Israel, but every time he opened his mouth, only blessing came out. Because you you cannot curse what God has blessed. It doesn't matter what the enemy may try to throw at us. I've come to declare that God's people cannot be stopped. You cannot defeat the church, devil. And every time that somebody raises their hand against God's people, I've come to declare it won't succeed. Because no weapon formed against me shall prosper. And thanks be to God which always causes us to triumph in His name. We can't lose as the church. But that being said, we can let our guard down. And that's something we must be vigilant about because if we let our guard down, the enemy does have other tactics. Now this story of Balaam, it reminds me of a story from ancient Greek tradition, likely mythology. The Greeks, they had been at war with the Trojans in the city of Troy for 10 years, as the story goes, but they could not defeat them. No matter what they threw their way, no matter how many times they tried to curse their enemy, if you will, They could not achieve victory. So the enemy changed their tactic. The Greeks, they built a large horse-shaped structure and they hid a small number of soldiers inside. The Trojans, they thought that it was some sort of peace offering, you know. They thought it was some goodwill gift and they brought it within the walls of their city. But under the cover of night, the men that were inside came out of their hiding place from within this structure. They opened Troy's gates And they allowed the rest of the Greek army in. And even today, we understand the concept of the Trojan horse. It's become a metaphor, really, to mean something that we invite into our lives that seems good, but is actually intended to bring destruction. It seems good. It seems harmless. But on the inside, it's full of something sinister. The seemingly impenetrable city of Troy fell that day simply because they allowed something inside their walls 
that seemed harmless on the surface, but it was a part of the enemy's plan. The Greeks could not defeat Troy from without, but the enemy achieved victory when they were able to sneak their way inside and fight the battle from within. And so Balaam, back to the story in Numbers, Balaam realized he couldn't curse God's people. So he advised Balak, the pagan king, on another way to defeat them. He said, I cannot curse them from without, but it is possible to corrupt them from within. I can't hurl my attack from the outside on this high vantage point, looking down at the people at Israel's camp. It's not working, Balak, but, but we can corrupt them. If we can weasel our way inside, they'll corrupt themselves from within. And Balak, here's what I want you to do. If you'll just invite them to participate in your idolatry, if you'll just seduce them into a little bit of immorality, then they will bring judgment upon themselves. And that's exactly what Balak did. You read at the end of the story, Numbers 25, verse 1, while the Israelites were camped at Acacia Grove, some of the men defiled themselves. The Moabite women, and these women invited them to attend sacrifices to their gods. And so the Israelites feasted with them, and they began to worship the gods of Moab. You see, all they did wrong was, was accept an invitation to a godless worldly party. And they went, and they began to incorporate the pagan customs, and they brought it back into the camp of Israel. And in this way, verse 3, the Bible says that Israel, they joined in the worship of Baal, and they caused the Lord's anger to blaze against them. You see, the enemy cannot curse us or defeat us, but the enemy can corrupt us and cause us to defile and to defeat ourselves. If he can get us participating in, in the ungodly things of this age and of this world, I believe that the enemy sits back as we bring God's displeasure upon ourselves and we miss the favor of God in our day. It did not come from the outside in. It didn't come being hurled from the outside. It happened from the inside out. It came from within. And I am persuaded that hell has no authority to defeat us and His purview only extends as far as God allows it. However, the things that we invite into our own lives, the things that we invite into our own homes, the things that we bring into the camp and into our tents, if you will, they have the potential to bring trouble to the church in Pergamum, Revelation 2, Jesus said, I have a few things against you because you have them there that hold the doctrine of Balaam. What's the doctrine of Balaam? It's this. He taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit fornication. It was a stumbling block that was thrown in front of the Israelites and they tripped over it and they fell down and they lost the favor of God in that season. I don't want to allow anything. I don't want to invite anything into my life. I'm preaching this morning to our families. We can't afford to invite things into our homes that could be a stumbling block for our families. We can ill afford to invite things into our homes that will be a stumbling block for our children. I don't want to be friendly with the world. I'm not talking about being arrogant and snubbing people, but I'm talking about what I invite into the intimate moments of our lives and into the intimate places of our homes. I don't want to invite worldliness in and invite God's displeasure upon us and be a stumbling block. 
to entertain sinful ideologies and media that quenches what God would do in my home because I want my home to also be an epicenter and a hub for revival. And so not only does it make a mess of my family, but it prevents me from rising to the level that God has called me to. The devil has no authority to defeat us, but we can open the door. So I will say again, we must be vigilant gatekeepers of our homes. I know this is an unpopular message this morning. I understand that. Thank you for allowing me to deliver what the Lord has laid on my heart. But let me say what James said. He said, don't you know, friendship with the world means enmity against God. Enmity. That's what happened to those children of Israel. Those Israelites in numbers, they, they became friends. They became friendly with this world system. And as a result, it put them on the wrong side of God's favor. And it invited His displeasure and judgment. Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. You see, Balak didn't defeat the people of God that day. Balaam didn't defeat the people of God that day. They defeated themselves by opening the front door to the influences of the world around them. They opened the door to that Trojan horse that seemed okay on the outside, but inside it was full of what was sinister. I will hasten to a close. Remember in Joshua chapter 7, the story of Achan. Achan, his only mistake. As the people of God, they, were, they had conquered Jericho. His only mistake was that he took something that God said you shouldn't take. And he brought it into his, into his tent when he knew that he shouldn't. And because he invited something into his tent, because he opened the front door to something that God said no to, as a result, the whole nation suffered a setback and Achan's family lost their lives. It's what we allow into our homes. We must be vigilant gatekeepers of our homes today. The hour demands parents that we are vigilant with our homes. King Hezekiah just a couple of brief examples here. King Hezekiah, likewise, he made the same mistake. He was one of the greatest revivalists that ever lived. He was a man that was passionate for God. He did amazing things, but, but he made some, some mistakes toward the end of his reign. And 2 Kings chapter 20 tells the story where envoys from Babylon came to the palace. The enemy came knocking. And when they did, Hezekiah flung the doors wide open. And he said, come on in, I'll give you the grand tour. He opened the front door wide and gave the enemy full access. And because he opened the door to the enemy, even though he ended up being okay, it was his children that paid a great price. For the prophet Isaiah, 2 Kings 20 and 16, then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, listen to this message from the Lord. Because you've opened the door to the enemy, the time is coming when everything in your palace, all the treasures stored up by your ancestors until now, they'll be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. Some of your very own sons will be taken into exile. They will become eunuchs who will serve in the palace of Babylon's king. 
And so I'm simply reminding us this morning, I hope you receive the word of the Lord, that it is important that we guard the gates of our home. It's important that we monitor what we are allowing inside of our tent because we cannot afford to cast a stumbling block before our families. We cannot afford as a 21st century church of the living God to invite God's own displeasure upon us and hinder the revival that God wants to do. Because here's what I believe. Because of what happened in Achan's tent, it did prevent progress in the collective. I'm not saying that we're held back to the lowest common denominator today. I'm not saying that. However, I will say that more progress is possible if we have parents, if we have apostolic families that will stand and say, I'm going to guard, I'm going to be vigilant, I'm going to make sure that I don't open the door to the enemy, I'm going to make sure I don't invite worldly things into my tent, and I believe, and I'm declaring this morning, that if we will have some people that will stand and say, as for me and my house, not only will our house be blessed, but I believe that this house will be blessed. I believe that the church in the city of Fredericton will march forward and, and move on, and the kingdom will be expanded, and we'll take the next city we'll take the next territory if we'll stand like that I wish somebody would shout it as for me and my house I wish somebody would let it be a declaration over your family in this moment somebody shout it again as for me and my house we will serve the Lord would you clap your hands and give God praise for a moment <laughs> musicians if you would come our children are far too valuable to not be diligent and to not guard their innocence Somebody say amen. And I am empowering somebody today. I am commissioning you. We are the gatekeepers of our dwellings. God, help us to have homes that are places of prayer. Help us, Lord, for our homes to be places of holiness, places of the scripture. Let our homes be the epicenter for revival. Let our homes be the places where we bind up broken hearts and that we lead people into a relationship with Jesus Christ, not just the church building. Strong homes and strong families make strong churches. To every parent, to every spiritual head of the home, as much as is within your power today, you need to guard what goes on in the home. Because I don't want just the power of God to flow when we gather in God's house on Sunday. I'm thankful for that. But if we want to be a book of Acts church, we need the spirit of God moving and flowing in our house. Somebody say, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord and we're going to invite God. Being a gatekeeper is vital. And I will end with this. But it's not just about preventing worldly values. It's about presenting godly ones. Amen. Because at some point, all of our children will be exposed to worldly ideologies and agendas. It will happen. It was just this week, I heard somebody make the statement, average of eight years old, that children are exposed to pornographic material for example eight years old I have an almost seven-year-old and that statistic stuck in my mind convicted me challenged me and I'm gonna prevent that as long as is within my power as long as is humanly possible but the truth is we can't shelter them forever
And at some point they will step out and hear something that challenges their faith, be exposed to something that is of an ungodly nature. And the question at that point, it will be this. Did we deposit enough in them that they will stand strong in spite of what they are exposed to? Will they stand strong in spite of it because of what we deposited in them as families, as moms and dads? A core passage, part of our apostolic doctrine, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. How many believe that today? I'm thankful for our apostolic heritage and doctrine. I'm thankful for that component of our faith. And then also, verse 5, because of this fundamental truth, here's, here's an accompanying truth. You should love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. Parents, we need to love the Lord and exemplify a love for the Lord with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our might. Forget content for a moment. Forget talking about the things of God for a moment. Can I tell you that your life is an epistle read of all men, certainly by your children. Your life might be the best Bible that your children ever read. So love the Lord unwaveringly. Give Him everything you've got. Because these words which I command thee this day, they shall be in your heart. They ought to be in us. But, but, verse 7, don't just keep it in you. Exemplify it, example it, do that. But don't just do that. Verse 7, Thou shalt teach these things diligently unto thy children. Shall talk of them when thou sittest in thine house. See, it's not enough to just silence the enemy's voice in our homes. I am commissioning you, yes, to be a vigilant gatekeeper, but I am commissioning somebody to be a passionate, bold, apostolic voice in their home. We need to be voices that speak the word of God to our children. We need some parents this morning and in this godless day that we live in, some parents that are not intimidated to pray over their children. Some parents that are not afraid to lead their family in a time of prayer. Some parents who are not afraid to to orchestrate some family devotion time and and to coordinate some discussion where Scripture can be talked about because it will bless your family immeasurably. It's not just what we prevent. It's what we promote. It's not just what we, not, what we don't allow. It's what we push in our home and what we speak in our home that makes the biggest difference. I thank God for Sunday school teachers. And I'll say again, thank God for all that they do to teach our children. But the weight of responsibility to train up my children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, it rests squarely on my shoulders and my wife's shoulders. Thank God for the church. It takes a village. I thank God for it. If you don't have godly parents, the church can be that for you. I thank God for it. I'm not, I'm not eliminating, I'm not excluding anybody, but I'm speaking to parents today. It rests on your shoulders to train up a child in the way that they should go, to raise them in the nurture and the admonition and the fear of the Lord. That's on us today. We have been called by God to diligently teach our children, not just on Sunday, but every day. And not just here in this house, but in our house. God 
I'm praying this morning that our homes would become the epicenter for the revival that you desire to bring in the name of Jesus. God, right now I'm declaring it over every mom and dad. I'm declaring it over every home. I pray that they would be apostolic. I pray, God, that they would be places of prayer and consecration. In the name of Jesus. Now we're going to transition here. I wonder if everybody would stand together with me those that would help if they could move into position I believe that this, this scripture the Lord helped me to see this scripture to encapsulate the call to action today Isaiah 62 verse 6 the prophet said I have set watchmen upon thy walls O Jerusalem mom and dad we're watchmen we're vigilant guards God has called us to be the watchmen on the wall of our house to keep the doors closed when the enemy is trying to encroach. Absolutely. But here's an important duty and job of the watchman to not just be this passive, quiet doorkeeper that opens the door and closes the door when it's necessary. But watchmen, never hold your peace day and night. Ye that make mention of the Lord, keep not silence. I'm commissioning a parent, some godly apostolic families to be the gatekeeper, but to raise your voice on behalf of truth today. Here's how we're going to close. Thank you for your kind attention to every young family that, is, that has a child in fifth grade or younger. You may have an infant in your home. That's fine. In fact, you may be expecting a baby soon. That's fine. We're not trying to exclude anybody. But, but anybody with a child, fifth grade or younger, can you please, if it's at all within your comfort zone, can you please step out of where you're standing? If you want to bring a friend, if you're new here and you want to bring a friend with you to stand with you, that's fine. But, but if you could begin to make your way toward this front, here's what I want to do. We have a gift for you. In just a moment, I'll ask you to move. The past two months, our family has been doing this family devotional, something that we felt as a church staff that we wanted to invest in and put in the hands of our young families. It's something where... Once a week, you will explore a new biblical story. It promotes discussion. It promotes prayer. It promotes apostolic godly values. And I believe that this will be a tool that will help us to move forward in what I preached this morning is apostolic homes and families. And so there's three stations. I'm going to have the three pastors. Pastor, if you'd join me here in the middle. We're going to pass you one per family, please. And uh, if we run out, we'll order more. But if you could begin to make your way forward. If you could receive one of these and move to one side or the other. Can you begin to move right now? Fifth grade or younger. Come on, step out in boldness. Step out in faith. Step out in consecration to the Lord this morning. And say, as for me and my house, as for me and my house, we are going to serve the Lord. The rest of the church, if you could just create an atmosphere of prayer in this moment. In the name of the Lord. If you have the gift of the Holy Ghost, it would be in order to begin to pray in the Spirit. As you get your gift, if it's, if it's all right, if it's, if it's good with you, I'd, I'd invite you to stay. We're going to pray together around this altar. In the name of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray, church, as they move right now. As we move through this sanctuary, let's lift our hands and lift our voices in Jesus' name. God, we feel your call and your commission. We feel your 
the weight of glory in this service and in this moment right now. God, not only is there a conviction that draws us, but I believe that there's an empowerment by the Spirit of God that is going to send us from this place, commissioned, empowered, strengthened by the Word of God and by the Spirit of God. In the name of Jesus. Church, can you just let a burden for families rest upon us for a moment? Can you pray? Can you pray in Jesus' name? Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. In the name of the Lord Jesus. In the name of the Lord Jesus. I'd like all of us to gather, all those that received a book, if you would be open to doing this, can you please take a step forward? Just fill this space here if you're in the, in the audience, and if, if it's possible, I'd like us as a church family to pray over our young families. Can we just step forward and create room for everybody else to gather behind us? Just move quickly if we can. Let's step forward. Church family, can we step out of where we're standing right now? And we're going to pray a prayer of commissioning over every young family. How many believe that what I preached this morning, what the word of the Lord has declared, how many believe that we're going to see it in Jesus' name? How many believe that we're going to see our homes become places where the Spirit of God is poured out? How many believe it today? In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus.